Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Boston Globe columnist Dan Shaughnessy will join us coming up in 20 minutes. Looking forward to that chat with uh, his upcoming NBA book, Wish It Lasted Forever. Stories from behind the scenes on the 80s Boston Celtics. Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and others. Uh, We will uh, chat with him coming up at 3.20 Central Time this afternoon. And we'll ask him if the Patriots are back. The Patriots reportedly interested in Odell Beckham Jr. making a strong push. That's according to Jordan Schultz. Um, who uh, also uh, added that Bill Belichick would love to add him to that offense. The Patriots making a play for him, Paul, because all of a sudden they have the same amount of wins as the Buffalo Bills. Right there. And uh, they're playing increasingly better. And they had to you know, finish up on Sunday and, and look at what the Bills had just done. I mean, that is the single most surprising result in the league this year. And there are a lot of games that, that are in contention on that list of the top five. But Jaguars over Bills, number one surprising result in the league this year. 9-6 game, poured it on defensively, three takeaways, and the Bills are at a come-to-Jesus moment right no now. I mean, the loss to the Titans is a disappointing loss, but it's to a prime contender. Um, that loss is like the Titans lost to the Jets, except, you know, not the not scoring is a, is a big problem. The inability to do anything and to lose giving up nine points. I mean, the bills score and defend scoring and to fail in both areas in that game is really a uh, shocker. So the bills and Patriots will play on Monday night, December 6th. That is in Buffalo. And then the day after Christmas, right? <laughs> then they play three weeks later. Those are huge games. They play right three now. weeks later on uh, on the Sunday, December 26th. Those And that is, as we look through the schedule, um, I mean, they, that the, the, those are the last two opponents. No, they do play the Dolphins. I was going to say, are those the last two divisional games? No, they play the Dolphins January the but 9th. But now you want to talk, and we've talked from a Titans perspective in years past about the the stress level and the energy you expend throughout a season where you're always fighting to get back to 500, to get above 500, to get in the playoffs on the last weekend, which the Titans regularly have done or last year to win the division at the end. Now the Titans are going to barring craziness. I mean, they're winning the division, right? So at the very least they're the fourth seed, they're hosting a home playoff game. Buffalo, conceivably, who have people people still love the talent, right? It's a very talented mm-hmm. team. Now it depends on how they play. But they're going to be, uh, very likely that game on the 26th it ha- has meaning, right? Most of these other teams, unless you go to the NFC East, are going to be battling for positioning and everything until the end. Titans are be battling maybe, you know, 4-3-2-1. But the stress on these other teams and the impact and the tiredness coming into the playoffs oh, – yeah is going to be different than for the Tennessee Titans 
which gives them another advantage going into the playoffs. Now, you draw the wrong team, and you might, it might not matter, which we've talked about. Matchups are going to be a big deal in the AFC because there's a lot of parity. But Buffalo is going to come into the playoffs a lot more stressed and having been through a lot different December than Tennessee is. How about Buffalo? Three and one at home. They are two and two on the road. New England, one and four in Foxborough, four and oh on the road. And this they year. used to be unbeatable. And uh, Tom Brady's Patriots were unbeatable at home. They won three in a row, New England, to get back to uh, half game back. Um, and their, their loss in the division may end up hurting them. That week one loss to Miami. They will play Miami the last game of the regular season. They opened up against them and lost 17 16. You know, so there I am blasting the Bills for losing to the Jags, but Patriots losing to Miami isn't much better, really. But, well, but at the time, see, I think that the week one results are so deceiving because the bad coaches can get, a, like Ken Wisenhunt always won week yeah. one. The bad, the bad NFL head coaches have all offseason. To come, come up, up and, and scheme up a plan for that one game. And then you turn around and you put together your next game plan over the, over the span of three days. Then you see the And tr- then you see the true, truth. yeah, the true colors come out. Miami put together a game plan to go beat the, the Bradyless uh, New England Patriots in Foxborough. And, and it was a slugfest, uh, field goal game. And meanwhile, by the end of the season, Miami's going to be lucky to have four wins by the end of the season. Yeah. Still a divisional loss that hurts New oh, England yeah. in, in terms of the competition. Still counts. you got to win those division. games, too. No question about that. Um, some of the other headlines. Pac-Man Jones. Pac-Man Jones in jail. Well, not in jail yet. He's headed to jail. Uh, he will be headed to jail November the 29th um, and must serve 30 days of this uh, sentence that could have been like upwards of four or five months. Uh, he punched and kicked a man in the head, causing him to lose consciousness. I want to add in there, the guy was a bouncer this at a This is the bar fight, right? That Pat McAfee year. had him on and said, how are you, Pac? Are you okay? Is that the same one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so <laughs> that, that was from last year. Um, I, I want to add in there, it's, it was a bouncer that was kicking him out of the club that he um, punched and kicked in the head. He has now been sentenced to 30 days jail. Um, after serving his jail time, he will serve nine months of community control. I guess that's probation. And then he he also is ordered to stay away from the victim. Um, He reports November 29th, uh, and after he's released, he will have a 9 p.m. curfew. That might be the biggest penalty for him. He has a (laughs) 9 p.m. curfew, and he must abstain from alcohol. Two two things for me on this. Two things that won't happen. Yeah. (laughs) no. That's my two things. I have no problem with people who have threatened my life going to jail for any span of time. And that list is one. Um, so I'm okay with this. And I'd really... And you believed it when he said it. Yeah. I mean, oh, I believe a, it. When he says it, you kind of have a way to believe it. I did. But I told my wife, like, listen, he's threatening somebody else's life. By the time I've gotten home and told you this story, we're off the hook. If it doesn't happen within half an hour, he's on to threatening somebody else. Um, also, I wish we had phones because you know his godmother would be calling oh. in today. And she's Radio Gold. She is radio gold. Pac-Man Jones, Godmother. For those that don't know, explain this on our, on our on it's our show, but our old place. Um, this Paul is after going, he came into. Paul he was, was invited in by Eddie George, yeah. to be part of Eddie George's number retirement. Yeah, it was all about the yeah the homecoming for former Titans players, and you spoke out against Pac-Man as I always do, and you ranted about it, and then we got a call from Pac-Man Jones' Godmother, and she proceeded 
um, to call Paul Kuharski everything but nice. And uh, it was it was good. It was it was old school radio gold from this lady. So she I just looked angry. up. I just looked up um, Pac-Man Jones legal troubles <laughs> just to see if we could give a running. Is tally. there enough room on the web? There's not because the, whenever he joined the Broncos briefly, they the the paper there ran a story of the new Bronco Pac-Man Jones's top thirteen legal issues. Came up top, with top cut it 13. down to 13. 13. Lucky 13. Yes. This is like one of those BuzzFeed polls. You could just have Tom Urbanski. run-ins. Tom Urbanski, the guy who's paralyzed. This is clickbait. Uh, Do you have to go to each story and click one at a time and go to all 13 pages? Like one of those slide, types of stories? Show. Now, some of these, some of these uh, you know, what he was charged with were ultimately dismissed. Like there was a, right after he was drafted, that the summer after he was drafted in 2005 here in Nashville with the Titans, he got in a bar fight. This was this was after the pool cue incident at West Virginia. He got in a bar fight, punched a guy in the face, and ripped off this four hundred thousand dollar necklace. Paul, you may remember covering this. He ripped off this four hundred thousand dollar. Is this big necklace. daddy Gaddy? I don't know. No, no. I don't was know. Well, was this was that at the place where you used to do your? Well, there was show? one at like the Bluesboro, right, or, right or somewhere in Murfreesboro. Then the oh, Bluesboro, this was, this he was spat well on after. a woman. Yeah, that was, was a well spitting after. on the woman. I love yeah. how we're getting all the yeah. <laughs> instance mixed but up. Like I remember that one because that was right before his holdout. And then, like thirty days into camp, he showed up and signed his contract or whatever. But that that was ultimately dismissed from the from the records. Well, one of the smartest things he did. There are plenty, or, of, or plenty of other Peter, issues that were not. Peter Schaefer's uh, his I mean, Denver-based agent. So when he landed with the Broncos, Peter Schaefer had Pac-Man befriend Peter Schaefer's son, who may or may not have some sort of issue. I, I don't remember that part. But he befriended Peter Schaefer's young son. And then Lindsey Jones, who's president of the Pro Football Writers Association now, um, she did a feature on Pac-Man Jones, um, a redemptive feature. Look how he's uh, with Peter Schaefer's son. It's a loving. He's a new man. All of this stuff. I like Lindsey Jones. You had words for Lindsey Jones. I, I said, well, I said something about her on the air, and I, I sent her a DM, and I said, you're going to regret this story. This guy's not uh, redeemable it's a mistake for you to have done this story. And she didn't respond and we never talked about it, but sure enough, like I couldn't help. That's when I brought her up is when he was next, next arrested. And I said, it doesn't matter if he plays checkers with Peter Schaefer's son. Well, the guy is irredeemable. I found a story from pre Broncos, Pac-Man Jones. This was 2009 ESPN story that has timeline of incidents. This is like the Bruce Pearl timeline. Timeline of incidents since Except the Titans drafted him in 2005. Hutton, you mentioned the nightclub altercation was number one. Arrested in Fayetteville, Georgia, charged with possession of marijuana. A felony count of obstruction and two misdemeanors of obstructing police. April 2006. A surveillance camera footage. Jones is one of 12 people gathered at a gas station when a fight breaks out. Gunshots are then fired. Shortly Just after like that, when you arrested, at a gas arrested in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Disorderly conduct, spitting, public intoxication, spitting on a woman. That's a popular one. He loves to. He's got a later that same year. We're still in twenty. We're still in two thousand six. October two thousand six. Cited for misdemeanor assault at Club Mystic, a Nashville nightclub, where he allegedly spits in the face of another female Mm -hmm. college student. Spittle. There's a problem. This is. You're you're leading up to two thousand seven. February two thousand seven is the strip club in Vegas with the eighty one thousand dollars that he made it rain. Uh, and then uh, allegedly uh, threw a stripper's forehead against the, the uh, this, bar stool. Yeah, the, this, the guy got this shot. This was the paralyzed. worst. 
Um, February 19, 2007, melee breaks out involving Jones after he decided to, quote, make it rain inside <laughs> Meek's Gentleman's Club in Las Vegas. Now, let's just pause Minutes there. after Everybody the fight. Hold thinks- on, hold on, hold on. Minutes after the fight involving Jones inside the strip club, an unknown gunman shoots three people by the front entrance. Follow it up. March 9, 2007. I love this quote. Gene Upshaw, then executive director of the NFL Players Association, asked this question. How is it possible to be in the wrong place at the wrong time so many times? Everybody thinks, you know, here's that. And so, oh, he's making it rain. Uh, making it rain was not a popular thing before this. This helped popularize the idea of making it rain. Before it was popular, that, just not in our circles. Yes. That this... I think, I think the rest yes. of the world understood what it was right. at that point. Came to, we all came to understand making it rain. But that, that was the most serious incident of a string of, and a number of problems. Well, at West Virginia, when he smashed the guy's eye out with the pool cue, that was pretty serious. Well, and this, that the Titans looked the other way on that, that because one, the yeah. tight end coach's son was on the West Virginia team with him, and part of the Titans' intensive research on Pac-Man Jones was to ask his teammate, their tight end coach's son, if he was cool. And he said, oh, yeah, he's cool. I mean, later in 2007, there was a shooting outside of a strip club in Atlanta he was in. Don't even remember this. He was seen inside the club with Edward Slugga Morris III, accused murderer and gang member. Got into a fight in the club, and then there was a hail of gunfire outside of the club. Also, remember his friend Lewis? He got busted with pot here, but he said Lewis had the weed. See, we can keep going. Lewis had the weed. That was famous. Uh, Another true story. Uh, Chad, I can't remember what you were having to do. You were doing something for the station at the Super Bowl. Paul and I went to, (laughs) we we went out walking and came across this like bikini contest or something. Yeah, in back of the In the back of one of the hotels. Not the Fountain Blue, but something. Yeah, and so we walked in, and as we made our way past the Cabanas, Paul I looks at me, he goes, hey, uh, I think Pac's in cabana number four. And I said, I about Paul knew the cabana said, numbers already. Said, well, he's here? The whole big, there's a big number over there. He's here? And in so, the so we circled around. This place? I, made a, I made a lap. I made <laughs> another lap. Um, and uh, comes story, out. I, I, he, he walked out right as I was walking by. I'm like, yeah, that's Pac-Man. I, Paul was like, you want to get out of here? I'm like, yeah, we're getting out of here. <laughs> we're getting but out we got a good look at it. Check, please. He wasn't sober. Oh, Pac's at this event? Check, please. Yeah. Coming up, Dan Pac's Shaughnessy here now, joins and us. the guns will be out soon. Uh, uh, we we hope those of you who didn't <laughs> get have an to umbrella, we're going to get spit Jones, on. Uh, enjoy that trip down memory lane because uh, he is headed to jail for thirty days uh, minimum. High security, here. low security, country club security. Don't know, but I mean, for the first time in a while, as you go through all these things, a lot of it's just probation, probation, oh, probation, yeah. probation. Now he's actually going to jail, although he could have gone for much longer. And the judge is making him serve only 30 days. My prediction. He spits on someone in jail. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, it's not, not turned out well. Although, uh, I, would have, I would have bet the under on a career lasting longer oh, than in Dallas. La, la, longer than da- Dallas. And, and it's been, he made a, a full NFL career. Thank God for the Brown family in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. I mean, yeah. Oh, and then Denver. Denver. Yeah, that's right. Dan Shaughnessy joins us next. Uh, time to tell some stories on Larry Bird, on Kevin McHale, uh, Red Auerbach, and, and, and much more. Shaughnessy, next. Outkick 360 rolls on. Outkick 360 rolls on. The Outkick uh, Network, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, but also 
Upper Cumberland, Sports Radio 104.7. We say hello to you. Fox Sports Knoxville, Fox Sports Shoals, Muscle Shoals, Huntsville, Florence. Glad you're a part of the Outkick Network. Pleased to be joined by our next guest, Dan Shaughnessy, a friend of the show. We've had him on a couple of times. Most recently, his last visit with the show was when the Titans went to Foxborough in Brady's final game at Gillette, and he wrote his uh, annual tomato can game. It didn't matter who the team was coming into, which, which team was coming into Foxborough. You just insert team name here. Shaughnessy had the column ready to go because that was the legacy of the New England Patriots. And honestly, it was very similar to the way the Boston Celtics would have treated playoff teams uh, back in the 80s. And that's the subject of his new book, the upcoming uh, NBA book, Wish It Lasted Forever, uh, which is available next Tuesday. Dan, it's great to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well. Nice to be here. Glad to see the Titans are doing so well and look forward to They're visiting here in two or three weeks, right? Yeah. Yep. yep. And uh, less than a month, we will, uh, we will be in Foxborough again. Dan, Excellent. really enjoyed a couple chapters uh, last night that I got to read. And uh, I, I just thought I'm so jealous of the access um, yeah. that, that you shared back at this time with a team of that quality. Cedric Maxwell said of you, he has irritated the hell out of me but he's entertained me at the same time. Does that about sum up the relationship that you were able to have with these guys and that you and, and a small group of beat people were able to have with these guys in that era? Yeah. I mean, I understand it's really old guy material and, and, and it's different now and it's nobody's fault the way things have evolved. I mean, last year when people went to the bubble to cover the NBA tournament, whatever you want to call it, you had to sign a waiver you had to pay a lot of money to go. And you had to sign a waiver saying you would not approach anyone if you saw them outside the arena. And that's all we did. I mean, covering the team, and this is just the way it was a long time ago, but you were, you were on the buses, you went to practice, you waited for bags, you were in the hotels, the bars, uh, you just, you were, you were around it, except for the, the fame and the money, and the groupies, it was like being on the team. So we were, <laughs> we were there and you could really tell, you could tell the readers what they were like because of the exposure that we had to them and the league wasn't as blown up as it is now. And they weren't as famous. They didn't have social media to interact with their own fans the way they do now. So it was a little bit of reliance on the newspapers to tell the story of the team and, and to describe the arc of the season. So I was fortunate to come into it then. And of course, to have this team, the Celtics of the eighties, you know, Larry Bird's MVP three straight years, 84, five, six, they're in the finals four straight years. They're playing the Lakers three times uh, Ali Frazier kind of thing. It was just so, you know, like a lot of us in the pandemic, the beginning days, you know, a year and a half ago, whatnot, you know, there was no sports and you got the last dance every Sunday night. It's like, hey, that, that ball was pretty good in the eighties and nineties. And then locally they would show classics of the Celtics in the eighties. And I'm seeing myself sitting in this seat, like right next to the bench, my young self and that's how it was. They didn't know enough to sell those seats for five thousand dollars. Then they gave them to the lowly media, and we were there. So uh, we heard stuff, and we were we were part of it. You were really inside. So it was really a good a good vehicle to tell the readers, tell the fans what what they're like. And that team in particular had a million characters. They're just guys that were you know they were they they were um, very secure in, in their greatness, and they were great teammates with each other. And they talk trash and they kick butt. And it was a uh, great basketball to watch. So I feel very blessed to have been around that time. So you guys could shoot on, on the court a little bit before they came out for practice when you showed up early. 
And you didn't have to immediately scatter the moment they set foot on a practice court. If Larry Bird said, shoot for money, what did that mean? <laughs> well, I appreciate your attentiveness to the text there because that's a true fact. I mean, Larry, Larry never lost the value of a dollar because he grew up really poor in rural southern Indiana. And um, I think it made him part of his part of his greatness was attributed to that. It, it, he had value for the fact that he was being paid all this money to play basketball. Couldn't believe how fortunate he was that he was able to do that because his brothers were better than him when he was young and they didn't have that life. So he he really appreciated the life that he had. And um, yeah, and, and he also had the the, the hustler aspect of, of people who are really good at what they do. I guess pool players do that. And Larry do when you walk into the gym, wherever he was standing, he'd look at you and say dollar. And that meant if this shot went in, you owed him one. And if he'd missed it, he'd give you one after practice. And shoot for money. And this, this went on all the time. And I took it home to my own family. I'd, I'd pull into my driveway and my five-year-old son be holding a ball, say, shoot for money. And uh, still, and, and Larry got to the point where he was doing it in games. I mean, he was banking three pointers after he won those three point contests the first time they had him, And he started getting cocky about it because it was kind of easy for him. And he was banking them in practice. Like who banks three pointers, but I know the New York Knicks trainer, challenged him. He said, you couldn't do that in a game. He said, I'll do that. If you give me five bucks. Sure enough, during the game, the fourth <laughs> quarter, he banks three pointer. He's got his hand out running by the next person <laughs> down the floor. I mean, he was playing shoot for money in real games. Wish it lasted forever. Uh, the life with the Larry Bird Celtics, the new book available next Tuesday, November 16th from Dan Shaughnessy, who is our guest on Outkick 360. Dan, if you will, tell the story about how Larry looked over at you prior to a free throw, winked at you prior yeah. to making it because he knew you were writing a piece about his free throw streak. <laughs> so, again, old days in newspapers, you're doing these early edition stories which go out to the boondocks and you know, you, you're committed in print and you're saying, we don't know who won last night, but here's what I got. And he had a free throw streak going. Calvin Murphy, I think, had the record of 88 in a row or something and Larry was coming up on that. He never got to it. But he was in the 60s or 70s, and he, he had the shooting routine at the, at the old garden. He'd be out there at like 4.30 in the afternoon, dimly lit garden, get an equipment guy, rebound for him. He'd go out there and do the perimeter for like half hour or whatever, and he'd never miss. If he missed, he'd say, oh, that basket's not set right. You know, I could tell you that, you know. So it was just ridiculous. And I would set up. I was an early guy, come in and plug in the old porta bubble, these, these archaic machines we had to try to transmit back to the globe and and he was always breaking my balls that was that was part of the thing it was fun and um they called me scoop he'd come over and say scoop what are you working on i said actually i'm doing a story on your free throw streak so don't miss in the first half because i'm going to look like a jackass if the streak <laughs> is broken and i've already written this story <laughs> so and in those days again our seats are right next to the bench and we were aligned right with the free throw stripe down toward their end so he goes to the line for two in the first half and he makes the first and he looks over and winks at me between free throws because he was thinking about, you know, shoot for money. And, you know, I got you here. And of course he made the second one, but I mean, who's at the line thinking about a stupid sports writers early edition story. That's just how it was then. And uh, it was, I feel very privileged to have been around it. Dan, I feel like so many of these stories about an era of teams is built around conflict. Think about the last dance and the popularity with that series. Yeah. All about conflict. So many of these stories, coach, player, player to player, a divided locker room, but yet greatness you know, shown through with that locker room. I'm struck by Kevin McHale in the book saying there is just such 
an unbelievable sense of lighting up whenever you see one of the guys from that era on that team because you love them so much and you're just so comfortable with them being a part of it. You don't see that oftentimes now, but these guys seem to really like each other and get along. Yeah, I mean, they certainly had their differences. They were all from different backgrounds, but they were very secure in their own greatness and their own talents, and nobody was worried about touches or, you know, the black hole not getting the ball back And because they were so good. You can be that way, I guess. And um, and then it, it's, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a touching, lovely developments later on because late in life, you know, stuff's less important. And, and you know, Kevin, you know, Kevin and Lynn McHale had five, had five children and, and I mean, man, they lost a girl. They lost a young daughter, a 21, two years old, young basketball player and had an incurable disease. And they had the best medicals you could have. And when he was coaching in Houston and there's a scene where ML Carr is, is old. It just just shows up and springs himself on him and says, my teammate needs a hug. And and Kevin talks about this. And it's, it's very touching. You know, it was hard not getting jammed up listening to it. Just how he says, whenever I see those guys, it just lights me up and He's not afraid to to say that, you know, he's not too big to say that. So it's really, I mean, to, to be part of that and the way these guys talk about, it, especially Walton, who's, you know, it gushes about everything, the greatest hamburger I've ever eaten, you know, <laughs> Mr. Hyperbole, right? So, but, but they, they gush about this time in their lives and it's really special. And all of us have played on teams at one time or another and, and to have been part of something like that and to be, play at that level and be that great. And to take this on to later life as, as you know, now these guys are all in their 60s and grandfathers and whatnot, but it's it's really special. You were courtside for what I consider the most unlikely uh, fight of, of my <laughs> yeah. time as a, as yeah. a sports fan when Dr. J uh, got yeah. into it with, with Larry. Um, and I'm hoping you could provide, I know you can, based on what I read, some of the audio that, uh, that provoked Julius Irving into a fight with, with yeah, Larry it's crazy. I and mean, the pictures in the book and you got to remember like how old people are. So Julius was older than Larry and had come into his greatness at an earlier time. And by the time Larry's at the height of his powers, Doc's on the way out. You know, he's played like, I don't know, 12, 13 years of pro ball, the ABA. And, and so he's, his skills are somewhat diminished. He's still Julius Irving. He's still Dr. J, but Larry's at the height of his powers and the trash talking and, there was always a lot with Philly and Boston. And again, our seats are right there next to the bench. We could hear this. It was abuse. I mean, I know that Julius made one out of nine shots in the first three quarters and Larry had like 38 or something. And they were guarding each other. They were both the shooting forwards and Larry's giving it to him. You know, get somebody else out here, old man, you can't guard me. And got to a point, they were right in front of us on the floor and Doc had had enough. And all of a sudden, Doc goes for his throat with both hands. And this picture's in the book, and neither one of them will sign it. Larry's never talked about it. Larry will talk about his dad's suicide. He won't talk about the Julius fight. Um, it's kind of an inside thing. And and then the fight ensued, and, you know, Larry got, I don't know whether Barkley or Malone's holding him from behind. He got hit in the nuts, and it was sort of flew in the face of the Indiana Southern rural code of, of, of street fighting. And he was pissed about how I characterized it. And they really, they cared about this stuff, man. And it was, uh, it, it's just... I know stuff happens today, but to have like these these gods of, of basketball at each other's throats in the picture, it's in the book. Literally, they're they have each their hands on each other's throats and they will not sign that photo because it's it's they're a little embarrassed by it, but it happened. I was there. 
Dan Shaughnessy, our guest. Why, why didn't Robert Parrish like you? And, and not just not, <laughs> not like you. He, he refused to speak to you. But in the book, you say you really don't know why or what, what led to that feeling about you. No one knows. And I, I talked to the teammates about it. I talked to Quinn Buckner. I talked to um, Cedric Maxwell. And Max said, Chief just had a disdain for your ass. You know, I'm like, okay, I guess. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was one night in San Antonio, and Robert and I are the same age. We're both born in 1953, so we're old guys. And and um, we got a little meet and greet. We're at this, like, outdoor restaurant in San Antonio. We got sort of thrust together because everybody else left the table. And I thought it was okay. Maybe I used the wrong fork or something or said something inappropriate. I'm not sure. But he, he just – he hated me. And – and Mrs. Chief, uh, Nancy, she hated me, too. And there's a scene in the book where they win the championship and Nancy's chasing me down the corridor in high heels, wanting to gouge my eyes out. Larry's laughing about it, said, I heard Nancy Paris tried to hit you with her purse and all this stuff like this. So it was just a, a time that is, is long gone. And, and, you know, we never we never made that right. And, hey, Robert Parrish, do you guys know that he played more games than anyone in the history of the NBA? Robert Parrish. And he won more rings than Bird and McHale because he went on to the Chicago Bulls and won one with Jordan. You know, his 11th, 12th man, whatever. He had, he was in great shape. He could run the floor. Incredible story. And uh, takes care of himself. And we wish him well. And why he hated me, I don't know. But there's nothing I can do about it. But that's one of the chapter titles Titles of this book is Chief Had a Disdain for Your Ass. <laughs> Dan, you don't seem like a, a reporter that would be easily intimidated by someone. I, I think of that era in sports and think about there's a lot of intimidating characters. To me, Larry Bird would be one of those guys because he can be very surly. Um, did you ever feel intimidated by anyone oh. that you covered in that era? Or was it just so um, open that you, it, you didn't get that way with them? No, at the beginning, especially because you know I came into it, you know, we're almost the same age, but you know he was pretty famous and he had already won a championship and you know, he, was, he was historically shy and didn't like the media, didn't talk his senior year at Indiana State, any of that. And I was aware of all that. And, you know, Larry's very protective. and doesn't like new people. And I was the new beat guy. I replaced Bob Ryan on the beat. So that was a big challenge because Larry loved Bob Ryan. So here's this new guy. And, you know, who's this guy? And and uh, we were in a bar. And, uh, again, the Celtics stayed in a Holiday Inn in Richfield, Ohio. Can you imagine that now? There's literally like snow would come in through the window of this thing, you know, the shades fluttering and it, it was a dump and, and that was where they stayed. So I'm at a bar and he's with Quinn Buckner at one end and I'm at the other and there's nobody in the joint. And I try to send a drink down and Larry wasn't having it. He refused my offer to buy a drink and uh, he didn't want to be owing me. And uh, I understand that now. It was a kind of a hideous rejection at the time, but over the course of time, you know, we're both from small towns he was really poor. I was kind of average. We didn't have much, but I understood that. You know, I was from a farm town and and I played high school basketball, but I, I knew the culture and the gym at our school was near the, the house that we lived in. And anyway, we, we hit a pretty good stride for a few years there. And, and he deep down, he likes me, but he would never admit that because we had our ups and downs. But it was I, I felt very privileged. I got a lot of good stuff out of him. It's all in the book because. He's, he said a lot of really good stuff over the years. and But he was always breaking chops. You know, they called me Scoop, and I'd walk. No one ever trusted me because they knew if I knew something, it was going to go in the paper. And I'd, I'd walk into the locker room, and, and Larry would say, Scoop, notice how quiet it gets when you walk in here? You know, 
And yeah, it, it was true. And, and I couldn't deny that. And it was kind of a badge of honor. I understood that, but you know, off, off hours away from the, away from the, the gym, we had a lot of moments and, and I really appreciated his greatness and, and what he brought to the craft. And, uh, and again, he was just so good and so unusual, so confident and, uh, you know, loyal to his family and where he came from. He never lost it. He never lost that mentality that he grew up with, which was grew up with having nothing. We're joking about the access, Dan, and the difference between then and now. Uh, I want to ask you about then and then. Uh, I think you were writing in 85 after a, a championship, uh, a marketing exec. You, you guys were complaining about access, yeah. and a marketing exec told you, we don't need you anymore. The, the building yeah. is sold out. It's going to be sold out. Your purpose to us is, is done. And I can imagine what that felt like then compared to now that seems like a, a blip but what was the evolving kind of access like e even then when you were really kind of embedded with these guys well we were just complaining about you know locker room access and hours and what hours we could be in there and all this stuff again compared to now we we had it, it was golden but at the time we were we were bitching about our thing and and the guy said that and you know he's a wonderful guy and we all liked him and it was prophetic he was right i mean they didn't need us. And now they really don't need us. And I, I accept it. I understand it. It's unfortunate, but you don't bay at the moon and cry about it. That's just the way things evolve. And it did. But in the moment, it was like, wow, this guy's he's telling the truth here. And he's, he's letting us know we don't need to do anything for you guys. We got this thing figured out. We got our sellouts and it doesn't matter if you're here or not. He was right. So I'm going to buy this book. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it quickly. And Dan, as I read it, I already know that I'm going to be bemoaning the NBA of today as I read this book, <laughs> much much like when I watched The Last Dance. And that those were the Bulls teams yeah. of my childhood. I watch and think, I wish we could get more of this today. And I'm going to read this, and it's not going to renew my love of the NBA. It's going to make me look back with fondness on that NBA and say, man, I wish it was more like this. Can you at least talk me off the ledge and say that's not the case? Or do you agree with me that's going to be the case? Everything you just said is true. And I have to be careful because the NBA is not going to love it if I'm promoting this book with, well, the league sucks now, but it was great back in the day we all doing this. And, you know, that's kind of how a lot of us feel. And, hey, they're they're athletic and there's a lot of skills that, that weren't around 40 years ago, but it was more fun. The game was more more fun to watch. It was more rugged. They weren't calling everything. It wasn't as much flopping, the whole reliance on the three-point. But again, you get into this, you sound like you're the old guy baying at the moon. I'm not going to do that. I just, I know what I saw. I know how great it was. This book is an homage to that time. And good luck to the great young athletes who are out there doing their thing today. And, you know, they're, they're, they're great players. I just, I, I, did, I did prefer the game in the old days, but that's nobody's fault. It's just, it's just the way it was. Dan, I'm assuming you were courtside for the famous left-handed game by Larry Bird. Um, did, yeah, that was out in Portland. Did you, did and, you, you know, know the great part was they were playing the Lakers. Like, I think that game was Friday and the Lakers were Sunday on national TV. And, and after the game, Larry said, yeah, I'm saving my right hand for the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> did you, when did you recall when you realized he was doing, he was playing the entire game left-handed? Well, he would do that occasionally, but in that game, he just had a lot of opportunities down low, and he just he just flipped it off there. But, I mean, it was incredibly uh, arrogant and just like, I mean, really? Because there were so many guys that were physically superior to him, but he was at a point, he was at the absolute height of his powers then, where he could pretty much 
I mean, how many guys are MVP three years in a row? It's only been done two or three times. I think it's like Russell Chamberlain, LeBron. I don't know. It's like really hard to do. And he was there then. And that was a league that had Magic and, and, and Michael. So it was, it was significant. We've got to ask you about the Patriots. You believing this trending up? They're they're hot on Buffalo's tail. Is this going to be a race or even a, a back to division championship? It's really weird. I mean, I, I always believed in the coach here, and I think that there's there is a certain system that that works well. And there's a lot of bad coaches in that league. Your guy is not one of them. He's not afraid of Bill, and that's what you need. You need a guy who doesn't wet his pants looking across the sideline. There's a lot of guys who do, and uh, that's in your favor. You can't be intimidated by them and what they do and and the whole thing. So that augurs well for the for the Titans. But a lot of them, I look, I was listening to coaches the last three games and the next two. And I mean, these guys, this is not Don Shula, George Hallis, and Vince Lombardi out there now. And it's nobody's fault, but man, it's it's rough. So hey, they're flawed. They have a lot of special teams, you know, screw-ups, which they never used to have. They put the ball on the ground like they didn't used to do, stupid penalties. Um there's no passing game. I mean, it's 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 game management 101. They're ground and pound. Um, the defense is pretty good. There's some there's some playmakers out there, and uh, they're paying the butt right now. And in a, in a league of parity, they got a shot. So I'm looking to see. Looks like you guys are you know advancing to a higher level of that of that conference because there's not much there right now. So this is a good year to get to the Super Bowl, fellas. If I'll you, see you up there in a couple of weeks. If you're a sports fan, you'll like this book uh, from Dan Shaughnessy. Wish it lasted forever. Life with the Larry Bird Celtics. It's available next Tuesday, November 16th. Dan, thank you as always. It's always great catching up with you, man. Good luck with it. It's terrific. Thanks, fellas. Dan, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Dan Shaughnessy has been our guest. Uh, really cool. Really nice. Yeah, that's a great It's going to make me not present. like today's NBA yeah. even more, just like the last dance that I can already tell hearing these stories. It's a good Christmas present. For uh, for somebody in your life who likes that era NBA, for sure. Um, so Josh Reynolds asked to be released from the Tennessee Titans, playoff contender, division leader. <laughs> Josh Reynolds would rather play for the Detroit Lions than the Tennessee Titans. That's all you need to know about the makeup of the player. Primary complaint is next on Outkick 360. Outkick 360 rolls on Wednesday edition, which means it is time for primary complaints. My complaint this week, I'll go back to the well. I I have a pet peeve with media members in particular that cannot properly pronounce a player's name, a coach's name the right way. It's going to be good. The way he was named. And the most recent example is Kevin Byard. Many are saying Kevin Byard. And it's just, it's simple. It's Kevin Byard. The, pr- the pronunciation guide is, is in the media guide. Byard is being very nice when he was asked about this today. Luke Worsham, I believe, from A to Z Sports asked this question. Paul was nice enough to roll film, roll tape on this. Here is Byard describing how many times he notices people getting his name wrong. I've heard, I've heard Bayard, uh, like I said, Bynard. I've heard uh, Bernard. Yeah, I just heard a lot. I mean, I don't really know where they get it from. You know, I don't know if it's like the teleprompter they just reading too fast. I don't know. So, so first, say it so everybody can hear it. Yeah, it's Bayard. Okay. Just Bayard. That's it. Like buy and then you're. Okay. That's it. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? But you know, they'll get it figured out sooner or later. Hey, Kevin. Unfortunately, they don't, Kevin, and and that's my issue because not only are they now screwing up your last name, your name is Kevin. 
and the NFL Twitter account <laughs> is putting out that your name is in fact Keith and not Kevin. New NFL power rankings, Keith Byard's interceptions, leading surging Titan squad. This is, with another a, a great game likely to happen this week, he will have five interceptions in his last six with one more pick, which means he will be in contention for defensive player of the year. And their own league cannot get one of the top defenders' names correct in a tweet, in a broadcast, period. Get it right. That's my primary complaint. Yeah, that Robert Goodell really needs to figure things out. People with just the NFL. panic with names. Robert Goodell needs to do They don't panic. They're just lazy. Yeah, they just don't take the time. They just assume. My primary complaint, I'm going to sound like an old man today in uh, in many ways. I love the good old days in college football when you're a fan of a team, you're a fan of the sport, and you looked at the program or whatever you had in front of you and said, oh, this guy's only a sophomore. Got two more years with him after this. This guy's a freshman. Three years after this. Oh, he's, he's a junior. He can come back and start next year, even though he's a depth piece this year. That's completely gone away. Why? The transfer portal. Because no one looks at anyone's class anymore. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Everyone's college roster is completely in flux from year to year. You're not studying the age of someone because smart fans know there's nothing guaranteed because they can leave immediately and go somewhere else. So every year is a big erasing of the, of the board. And you look up and see who's left in the wake of whatever just happened. Tennessee basketball played a game last night against UT Martin, a team that didn't return a single player. First time it's happened since 2002. They're basically an expansion team in college basketball. Not one player was on the roster a year ago. I know a lot happened, including the death of their coach that led to that. But this is where we're headed with the transfer portal. And I'm not anti-transfer portal, but I am anti-no one knowing the class of a college athlete. And that is my primary complaint. Chairman of the board, David Reed. My primary complaint, the NFL media in particular, and this is playing itself out again with the Dalvin Cook story. Last week when a Raiders um, player threatened to kill someone and another one actually did, you made the biggest villain in the NFL a guy who made a conscientious decision about his own health. That is my primary complaint. David Reed. Now to Paul Kuharski. My primary complaint is the bathrobe. <laughs> Listen, I understand the use of the bathrobe for comedic effect, okay? We've seen guys in shows wearing bathrobes. MASH, Anchorman, Ferris Bueller, even Fight Club. Bathrobes, all right, right? Larry David, though, the Curb Your Enthusiasm is an autobiographical show. I do not buy for a second that Larry David in real life is wearing a bathrobe. But in Curb Your Enthusiasm, he's wearing a bathrobe. I have pulled a bunch of guys, not in this room because I wanted to see the reaction to this. I don't know anybody that wears a bathrobe. No. I've worn a bathrobe as a gag at a luxury hotel. That's it. Why, are they, why is Larry David wearing a bathrobe? I, I once wore a bathrobe to bed at a hotel. You can all I, twist it up. Yeah, it, it, it was the most uncomfortable sleep of my life. And... Um, and it was at a five-star hotel. Yeah, that's the only <laughs> reason. I, I forgot my luggage. You're I supposed to, to wear it there, right? Because oh. it's in the closet. So you have to experience the luxury. I, I, David Reed, I could see throwing this off. Yeah, if you if look, if you go to a hotel that has a bathrobe and you don't put it on and go, <laughs> woo, 
<laughs> we can't be friends. That's it. But at home, you don't have a bathrobe. You're not walking around at Reed, home in a bathrobe. Reed wants to walk that to the ring. Well, if I can find one that fit. <laughs> Chad, bathrobe I, guy? I, I'm very pro-bathrobe as an idea. I once asked for a bathrobe 10 years ago for Christmas, <laughs> and I've got a really nice ba- navy blue bathrobe when was the last time you wore? that's hanging up on the back of my door leading into the bathroom. I think I've worn it twice yeah. <laughs> since I got it. If it's, your towel, if you can't reach your towel, you use your bathroom. In theory, I embrace well, the idea of a nice bathrobe, you know what this but means. in practice, I'm not going to wear it. This means that Chad Withrow wants for nothing, because if you ask for a bathrobe as a gift... You have everything. I had a great slideshow. <laughs> I had a great slideshow ready to go. You know what? I'm going bathrobe this year. Thank I had you. a great slideshow ready be, to go for those watching the show, but we had copyright I, issues. I, this year on my Christmas list, I want a pipe with elephant tusks. <laughs> Please. And, and make I, that tusk in danger. I'm not talking about smoking jackets. I'll That's a different issue. She rolls on. And conflict diamonds. 